Hey, fans, go to RugbyImports.com for all your rugby outfitting needs. Whether you're kitting out your team with our American-made jerseys, stocking up on training supplies, or just getting a new pair of boots, Rugby Imports has all you need for on the field and off. Go to RugbyImports.com. Hey, don't forget, the biggest rugby party in the USA is slated for February 10th through 12th, 2012 in Las Vegas, Nevada. The USA 7's International Rugby Tournament brings the United States and 15 other top International 7's teams to the American Stop on the World Series circuit. It's three days of thrilling action. Go to USA7's.com for details and great hotel and ticket packages. And if you're a player, the Las Vegas Invitational is where you can play rugby before seeing the USA 7's. Presented by Stations Casinos, the LVI is the biggest tournament in the country and offers sevens and fifteens playing opportunities for all levels. Go to LVIRugby.com for details on how to sign up and get great USA Sevens deals and special rates on Stations Casinos Hotels. Once again, go to LVIRugby.com for details. Jonah Lamu Rugby Challenge is now available for pre-order at GameStop and the store at GameShark.com. Order now and get a free t-shirt with pre-orders. Games Radar says the game looks fantastic and plays smoothly. A long time coming and worth the wait. Get your copy today and get the game hailed by Gamer Fusion as a great experience. Jonah Lamu Rugby Challenge offers an unrivaled Xbox 360 rugby experience. Featuring 93 teams and 31 stadiums, online leaderboards, in-game Dolby Digital, and multiplayer voice chat. Buy now and be among the first to play this acclaimed game and get a free rugby t-shirt. Check out GameStop, GameShark.com, and check out the ad on our main page at RugbyMag.com for more. This is Matrix America. Welcome everybody and happy Thanksgiving to everyone listening to Matrix America. We're excited to have our, our Thanksgiving time show and entering into the holiday season and we have a great show for you today because we are welcoming USA Rugby CEO Nigel Melville. But before we bring Nigel in, just say happy Thanksgiving to Pat and Bruce, Pat Clifton and Bruce McLean. Pat, how's it going? How was your Thanksgiving? It's good. I'm still trying to uh, cover, recover from the uh, turkey overload from yesterday, but um, the leftovers are uh, patiently awaiting in the fridge, and I'm I'm good. I'm ready to go. Excellent. You've, you, they've got your name all over them, don't they? Well, yeah, yeah, everybody knows that. I'll tackle anybody that gets near the okay. fridge. That's good. And, and Bruce, uh, have a good time with your family. Yeah, I did. I actually went to the New York Athletic Club at Travers Island where we play rugby for Thanksgiving, and um, I had it there because that allowed me not to do any preparation and not to do any cleanup. And on the night before Thanksgiving, which was – a little bit rough. I uh, went out with all my all my all my high school rugby friends and football friends. So it was. It's we've been doing it for 30 years. So it's. Uh, but that was a lot of fun as well, and it was good to catch up with everybody. Although I coach with a lot of them and see them quite often, but <laughs> I guess we always use the excuse that we catch up, and I'm thankful for those guys. They they meant a lot to me. So, but that yeah, this is good. Nice show we got today, and I'm. Um, Wish everybody a happy Thanksgiving. And a happy Thanksgiving also to Nigel Melville, CEO of USA Rugby. Nigel, welcome to the show. Thank you, Alex, Pat, Bruce. Happy Thanksgiving. Great to be with you. Nigel, obviously the, you know, there's a lot to talk about. And, but I think, I think one of the things that's on everybody's mind right now is 
the coaching application process for the U.S. men's senior national team head coach? And B, when do you anticipate that being um, that being decided? And C, what is the Eagles' schedule for the upcoming year? Okay, let's start with the first one. We posted the um, the job application um, a couple of weeks ago, but a week ago. We've had plenty of response, as you can imagine, uh, from all quarters, from obviously overseas, obviously in the U.S., and uh, you know all kinds of standards from people I know to people I don't know. So um, haven't been through them in any detail. We'll wait till the closing date, which is uh, the end of this month. Um, when we get the closing date uh, and get everything in together, we then uh, take a look. And we've got a panel, which Kevin Roberts is chairing, which has Bob Latham, myself, and Francois Vilgen on it. Uh, we'll look through the the um, applications. We'll create a shortlist, and from the shortlist, we'll uh, we'll interview. So that's sort of the process in terms of time. You know, I, I want to know who the next 15 Eagles coaches as soon as possible. I'd like it all wrapped up before Christmas. Nigel, do do you have a sense of the 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 level, the standard of the applicant pool compared to say? to 2009 when you had to move fairly quickly to, to and, and brought in Eddie O'Sullivan or uh, 2008 when um, Scott Johnson came on board? Yeah, I think we've got a lot of quality and, and as you can imagine, there's a lot of interest in, in coaching the Eagles. And I think uh, following the World Cup, there's been a lot of turnaround with coaches and a lot of people have availability. And you read in the papers, you know, even the last couple of weeks, there's been a lot of turmoil, a lot of change going on. And as the change comes forward in the papers, the names and the resumes come forward at, a, at an alarming rate. So we, we have some very high-quality coaches in there, um, what you would call the usual suspects if you read the media. Um, and then you have a lot of coaches you probably haven't heard of that are working probably in uh, New Zealand, Australia, South Africa, um, are working at a, a, a lower level, but still quality coaches in themselves. And then we've got a lot of American coaches, coaches who feel that they could uh, are ready and willing to take on the challenge of coaching the Eagles. And uh, the third part of um, of Bruce's question was on the the Eagles schedule. How's that shaping up? Yeah, the show's coming together. It, it, it's very frustrating for us because we don't um, have the actual games that we're playing. We know the windows, which are in June. The last three weekends in June that will be the June window, and then November there's three weekends and. We have a meeting in January where the, RF, the IRB are pulling together um, the Tier 2 nations to, to try and work a fixture list out that will run through the next three years, uh, not just um, you know, one year at a time, because we want to plan. Um, we're hopeful, and this is not confirmed yet, that we will get a Tier 1 team every year in June visiting, and they'll tour and play Canada, play ourselves, and then play probably in Argentina for their three weekends. Um, and the tier ones they've been talking about are Italy, Ireland, and Scotland. So that's that's very encouraging. We don't know yet for certain, but that's where we're heading. And alongside those fixtures, we would hope to have, obviously, a game against Canada, and then we would hope to have another tier two coming to visit in June, and then touring uh, Europe in November and playing three test matches in November. So we should get six guaranteed tests per year. And then if there's any chance to play outside the window, we'll, we'll certainly try and do that, which could be another game against Canada. Um, and there could be some alternatives come out of, the, out of our meeting in January. Nigel, um, give me an idea of somebody who's never been in those discussions or knows how it works. Tell us fans how, kind of how it does work. How do, you, 
how do you determine you talk about these tests and working with the which tier one nations you might get how much of it is determined by you and and say scotland or ireland or or italy and how much of it is decided by the irb kind of just walk us through the process well there's a tier one schedule which has been agreed and the tier ones basically sort out their fixtures amongst themselves and over the next four years and then they but during that schedule they will agree to play a tier two nation at some point um so we don't have a choice. They're allocated to us. Um, the IRB decides who plays who. We all push to get you know, the highest ranked IRB um, international tier one that we can. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, it's very, very difficult because everybody wants the same thing. Plus, you've got to take into account the tier ones don't want to play us. I mean, the tier ones find it a commercial nightmare playing the, the tier twos. They can't play us at home because they can't make any money. They don't want to tour and give up a window in a week um, in June when they could be playing away in South Africa and sharing big revenues. And so it's very, very difficult. So to get Italy, to get Ireland, to get Scotland to come over would be a great boost for us. But as I say, we don't have a huge amount of say in that. And then the Tier 2 games are fixed by the IRB depending on who they feel that they're going to rotate the European teams such as Russia, Georgia, uh, and also teams such as Japan, who are closest in the rankings, who they want to make sure that we play. Also, you know, I watch, you know, the Pacific Nations Cup, and you see Japan do, um, you know, really well and win the thing and, and see them play in a, a yearly competition with uh, the likes of Tonga, Samoa, and whatnot, Fiji, and, and those guys. What are the odds? I know we just had the Churchill Cup in, but what are the odds? Um, is it a possibility that we could get in something like the Pacific Nations Cup or create something else um, here at home again with the absence of the Churchill Cup? Yeah, the, the main problem is numbers of teams and numbers of weekends available to play in. Um, they've got such limited um, windows to play in that it causes some problems with re- release of players. The, the, the conversation in January is going to be about a program that takes us through to the next World Cup. So Pacific Nations Cup is one option. The, the European Nations Cup that they have is another option. Um, it may see Canada heading in one direction and us heading in another. But they realize there is a problem for us, that we're sort of out on a limb, that we don't have regular competition. And Japan sort of fall into that category as well. You know, And we're all looking for some sort of stability so we can plan, so we can play against each other regularly. And our problem is that the islands go to play the Tier 1s, so they to play them in Twickenham and, uh, in November. And so we can't get access to the islands at times. We offer as well to play teams like Samoa um, in the, in the Wednesday, on the Wednesdays and the midweek games of the November windows so that we can probably play at, say, a premiership ground in England and we could end up like Fiji or Tonga in, in Europe. So we're looking at the, um, the IRB are very, very aware of our problems. The ones are also aware of our problems are some for us and uh, we'll put some suggestions forward, which you know, we hope we hope get them to and January we'll hear a bit more. Nigel, one of the... One of the issues with the the Eagles is we we talk about games getting games. So so let let's say that this plan works out and it's six test matches, three in in June and three in November. Um, I know that there's also uh, there's been a lot of talk about bringing back the midweek game and and maybe that would add more games. And then you know following on what Pat had to say. Right now we're talking about classic tour matches more than anything else nothing for a trophy what 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 is your opinion about the importance of more test matches or more games for the usa over and above six and how important it is to play for a trophy or are we okay with with just playing games in a more traditional tour and friendly format 
No, I don't like the friendly format. I, I like to be playing for something. You know, Six Nations has got something, a ring about it. It really gets people focused for a period of time. So does, you know, things like the, the Pacific Nations Cup. And, I, you know, we'd like to enter one of those competitions. Um, it's unlikely we're going to get into European competition. Um, it's unlikely that Pacific Nations will get in there in the same way as we'd probably like. So what, what they are looking at is, is probably is there a way of creating a new competition. And the other side of this is looking at um, the... The release windows in the Northern Hemisphere include Six Nations. So there are a number of Six Nations release windows which we would become eligible for. Um, our problem is finding teams to play within those windows. And that's, that's something to be discussed and will be in the, in the, on the agenda for January, um, which would give us more opportunities to get our players and more opportunities to play games. So one other thought was to link the two windows, the June and the November windows, in a trophy situation because... Some of the islands are going to be playing up in uh, Europe during that period. We could play the second part of our tournament and the first part in June and the second part in Europe. So there is something to be said about linking the two. There's a good. It, everybody agrees it's best to play for a trophy of some kind, and I think that's also commercially better for everybody. What about getting an American team into a competition the way that um, Italy has been able to essentially create a club that plays in what used to be the Celtic League, and uh, and even Argentina being able to play in in the Curry Cup in South Africa, would there be <laughs> would there be a, a situation where an American team could somehow enter the the Amlin Challenge Cup? Because well, you probably heard my um, uh, an article I did in in Britain just last week um, in the Rugby Magazine, and I was saying to them that. Um, as I think that they ought to open their eyes a little bit more because they're going to look at markets to, to broaden their markets and commercially expand their tournaments and there's a huge commercial market here and travel's not that tough these days you know, you could travel across to the east coast of America pretty easily from Europe you don't have to come every week, you just have to come once a year, you know, most of the traveling would be done from a, um, a franchise based on the east coast, so I floated that idea with regard to the premiership and we've spoken to um, the the leadership of the Premiership and discuss this with them, and it's something they were they're quite interested in. You know, I wouldn't say they were overly, you know, red hot about the idea, but certainly recognised as an opportunity. The other side of it was I was floating the idea of well, you know, we could then, if we played well in the franchise, we could get into the into the if we played on the Premiership, we could then play well and enter into the Heineken Cup and enter into that level as well. So those discussions are things that I've, I've been floating for a little while. We talked to people about it. Um, there are huge issues regarding overseas players, regulations of competitions, but in my view, nothing you can't get over. Um, Celtic League, probably a little bit more difficult because they've expanded recently, but I think that the Premiership would be fantastic and a great opportunity for us to, to base a team on the East Coast, play um, into into Europe, play into Great Britain, into England, and also have those teams coming over here once a year. So I think that would be very interesting. and. As you know, we've also presented to the Super 15 people and the Sanzar unions about having a franchise on the West Coast, Pacific Coast, and maybe playing in a, a, a developed, a newly developed conference to take you to Super 20, where you could bring in Japan, maybe some of the island teams, and have some franchise for the Pacific Rim, and then just pull them all together. So those things have been floated and been talked about, and I can see it happening down the, down the road. Um, I just think that people don't see far enough ahead and don't see the opportunity yet that I think they, they should be looking at. Even if we can't get into a competition, 
is there anything that can possibly be done to allow tier two players, say anything beyond anything beyond level twelve or number twelve in the world, to play as locals in tier one competitions? Meaning, yes, you have to get the proper visa and you got to have all the qualifications in that. But as far as the league is concerned, you're not considered a foreigner. We, we've and had that, I think, could give us some opportunities. Yeah. We've had those discussions, and at the moment, they've always rejected them and uh, and not wanted to expand it. The problem is they look at their own domestic game, and England is a great example where they've got an increasing number of foreign players playing in the uh, Premiership, and soccer is a great example where we've found that more and more soccer players are coming from Italy and Argentina and Spain, and that's damaging the national team. And that's some, a road that the rugby union don't want to go down, and so they're very protective about the number of overseas players. Yes, it'd be great for us, but no, it wouldn't be great for them. And so it's a delicate line. Um, but if we did have a franchise based here, then they would have to relax their rules, but there are commercial opportunities for doing that. And I think that that would be an incentive for them to relax the rules and let us get involved. And one of the conversations I had only only three days ago was, well, London Wasps are up for sale at the moment. Why don't we just buy London Wasps and bring them over here? And of course, you know, there was howls of, you know, you can't do that. But it would be an existing premiership club. It doesn't have a home. We could find it a pretty good home over here. We could get some great players into that, that particular franchise and play in the premiership. But even even so, say you did buy London Wasps, mm-hmm. what's the point in playing every game over here? Like, why not just play two games in two games in September over here, or one or two in September and October, and then not play back here again until May or April, and and just play over there? A, the weather's horrible here, and no, B. You, you wouldn't, Bruce. You would play home. And, you have to play home and away. I know you play home and away, but why you don't you have a home when field you over them. there? You, you would structure when you played them. You'd play the, the home games when it's best to play the home games. You'd play the away games maybe two or three games, four games at a time. Um, you'd just go and camp over there and like a minute. No, that's what I'm saying. Is, well, but also, what about having a home over there? Yeah, you what can, about you renting can. a stadium or having a home where you play... Seven of your seven of your eleven games there, and you only really play four stateside. That's, that's an, right, it's Bruce. enough rugby to give you kind of a taste, but you're not married to trying to fill a stadium five six. I mean, it, we struggle with the national team to do that. Yeah. Well, there's two there's two situations here, Bruce. One is if you were a new franchise, they'd have to expand their competition, which they're reluctant to do because they'd have to cut the cake by, you know, another another club. Um, if you took over an existing club, an existing franchise, there would be less problems in, in making this happen. So that's probably the route that you would want to head down. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's something that we should be looking at, and we are looking at, and we have mentioned it to people, talked to people about it, and uh, they are ongoing conversations. Um, in terms of, we talked about commercial viability and, and the commercial markets over here. Where are we in terms of, you know, I, I think everyone has seen the stat at one point or another, and I can't quote it exactly, that the Sporting Goods Manufacturers Association of America or whatever said that, you know, rugby is the fastest growing sport. Um, we look at the ratings every time there's rugby on in the United States. 
um, with the Rugby World Cup or, or how one of our domestic competitions does when it's broadcasted, be it a, a sevens event or, um, you know, the, the CPD final last year. How, and, and obviously, I think part of the, um, the emphasis on youth and the rookie rugby and getting as many kids involved um, at a young age is so we'll have fans when they grow up. Where do you look at our projections and, and do you project, you know, this is when we're actually going to be a, a viable place to where people are paying us for the rights to show um, things like the CPD, um, things like sevens instead of us paying them or uh, us giving the rights away. Where do you look at in terms of us growing our commercial viability to American um, potential sponsors and advertisers? Where are we on that? And, and do you have any goals set out that in five years I want to be here, 10 years I want to be here? We do, and we're looking at how we how we obviously commercialize the opportunities. First of all, we needed pro- products to, to sell um, that would be seen as uh, legitimate sponsorship opportunities such as Rocky Rugby is one in, in, in a certain way in development and youth and families and, and messaging in terms of domestic events such as Seven, such as uh, the CPD, such as um, other competitions and internationals. The interesting thing about broadcast is that I was talking to an MLS owner last week and he said it took them 10 years for the broadcasters to actually pay them a rights fee. Um, prior to that, they're having to produce everything themselves and get it onto TV. By getting it onto TV, they got the increased sponsors. When they got increased sponsors, that certainly helped them. Um, so you have to create that awareness. And I think what's happening at the moment is we're starting to get a level of an awareness where sponsors are starting to show interest. It's at that level. You know, it's a pretty low level, but it's it's at that level. Uh, we are getting interest. Obviously, Universal NBC Universal deal for the World Cup is a help for us because in the next four years they need content and they need to build sponsorship partnerships and we intend to work with them to achieve that. So we're working forward on those areas. We're working forward at developing the tournaments and the competitions to improve them, to make them look like you'd expect them to look like on TV, to get more interest from broadcasters. And we do have more interest from broadcasters. We haven't got them throwing money at us, no. NBC Universal will help us now with production for our international games. So that's the level we've got to. So we're making progress, and in 2012 we want to uh, engage with... Um, a full-time sponsorship team who are going to be out there certainly monetizing these uh, projects for us and trying to build the brands so that we can take them into the next level, which you know would, would include things like rights fees, would include greater sponsorships and expanding the opportunities. Well, speaking of commercial opportunities, we will be right back on Rugamatrix America. Hey fans, go to RugbyImports.com for all your rugby outfitting needs. Whether you're kitting out your team with our American-made jerseys, stocking up on training supplies, or just getting a new pair of boots, Rugby Imports has all you need for on the field and off. Go to RugbyImports.com. Jonah Lamu Rugby Challenge is now available for pre-order at GameStop and the store at GameShark.com. Order now and get a free t-shirt with pre-orders. Games Radar says the game looks fantastic and plays smoothly. A long time coming and worth the wait. Get your copy today and get the game hailed by Gamer Fusion as a great experience. Jonah Lamu Rugby Challenge offers an unrivaled Xbox 360 rugby experience. Featuring 93 teams and 31 stadiums, online leaderboards, in-game Dolby Digital and multiplayer voice chat. Buy now and be among the first to play this acclaimed game and get a free rugby t-shirt. Check out GameStop, 
GameShark.com and check out the ad on our main page at RugbyMag.com for more. Well, we have uh, another aspect of the, the commercial side of the game and, and, and also about uh, getting players better prepared to compete internationally, Nigel, and, and, and that's on the sevens side. And, of course, the uh, seven, as we can call it, Olympic rugby. Sevens rugby is the Olympic sport, and uh, the U.S. team, the U.S. men's team, went to the Pan Am Games, played their first Olympic-style competition, uh, got the bronze medal, and and looking ahead, um, it it appears that the USOC is going to start before the 2012 games, um, which doesn't have rugby, and and so they basically would have an excuse not to pay any attention to rugby until after the 2012 games. But before then, they're going to be taking some steps to support players. And can you tell us a little bit more about what that plan is? I can tell you a little bit about the plan. Um, I can tell you about the process that you go through with the USOC in terms of funding. Um, there's 48 governing bodies, obviously, all vying for resource allocations from the USOC. So it's very, very competitive. And obviously, in, a, in, a, in Olympic year 2012, it's extremely difficult to get funds from, from the USOC. Um, they do fund in quadrennials. So the four, the four years following each game, they would then start to look at who's in the next games, and they start to fund on a year-by-year basis. So we applied for um, support from the USOC um, over a year ago and uh, when we first became members. And we were, we were given a little bit of access to um, Olympic training centers and certain high-performance resources that they have, such as nutritionists, psychologists, and, and some of their, um, their, their strength and conditioning information. We attended coaching conferences and all kinds of things and basically became part of the family and started to work with the USOC high-performance staff and working with the governance staff and, and various other levels of, of the USOC. In the last um, four months, we, we, we got the opportunity to present again, and uh, this presentation was, well, look, we're finding that around the world, every other Olympic uh, nation are starting to invest in, in their rugby programs, and we're very concerned that we, we may fall behind in terms of funding, and opportunity, and then the catching up becomes a lot more difficult. So we presented our thoughts, we presented information we got from around the world, um, from other competitions, from the Chinese, from the Russians, and some of the major Olympic bodies, um, and we made a presentation based on what we feel the next step should be. Um, I'm delighted that um, throughout those presentations, the USSC were really supportive. Um, they've been following us around for about a year, talking to us about a variety of things, and we are heading now towards a situation where in 2012 the USOC are going to um, offer us some funding to help support our men's and women's sevens teams. Um, and that will come in the form of support from the Olympic Training Center, um, a national base from which we can operate from. It will also move us towards full-time residency for a number of players, both men and women. And that will be a huge step forward for us, not only the outside the next quadrennial, um, it will give us a great opportunity in 2012 to create a base and to settle into a home where we can really start to develop our teams and our athletes on a full-time basis. How does um, how does the residency work? You know, when can we expect it to start in January, and and how many people can we expect to be housed, and and that sort of? Can you give us some specifics on on the residency no, program? I'm, I'm not going to do that until we've signed off the performance partnership agreement with the SOC. Um, we'll announce it in the next week. Um, when we announce it, 
it will include a number of men and a number of women in full-time residency. The program will start January the 1st, but getting people into residency in this short time window might be more difficult. And we're currently talking about selecting uh, those athletes and who they would be and who could make and who couldn't and how we would develop the programs. Um, at the end of the day, we need more competitions for our women, which I think we've, we've managed to uh, secure. Um, and also the men have already started their 2011-12 uh, series. So we'll be moving and trans transferring towards that uh, situation in the next two months. And by the end of January, and certainly by the time we get to Los Angeles, uh, Las Vegas at the USA 7s, I think that we will be um, in full-time residency. Are the guys getting paid? Yep, they will be paid a, a stipend, and they will be given support uh, from the USOC and uh, access and food and all kinds of things that go with that to support the athletes and enable them to train for full-time. How big a change do you think this is, Nigel? Is it is it a huge revolutionary step, or is it just another step forward? And, and you know, we talk about money. Is it is it a huge yeah. amount of money, or is it does it just relieve the burden a little bit on USA Rugby and you can reallocate some resources? No, USA uh, NFL players, you know, are paid a substantial amount of money, and people think about professional. They think about NFL players and baseball players, and when you think about Olympians. Olympians don't share the same benefits that an NFL player would get. They, they live on stipends. They live pretty meager lifestyles. They're committed to their goals. They're committed to the movement. And, and that's got to be the expectation of Olympian. That's what Olympism is, and, and it's, a, it's tougher for those Olympians. But, but they can be put in great environments. They can get a certain amount of support, which means that they don't have to work. It means they can train like Olympians. Now, when you say what difference does that make, at the beginning of... Professional rugby, um, I was with the amateur team at Wasps that transferred into being a, a professional team. And within six months of being part-time professionals, we went full-time professional. And the difference it made was unbelievable. It meant that players could train without any concerns and worries and play with train with confidence and rest properly, sleep, eat, and really focus on you know, performance. And that makes an incredible difference. And... Until you see it, you know, we don't know for certain the great leaps this team are going to make and the players that we put in residency will make, but I can assure you that they'll be significant. Does uh, it include the coaches in yeah. residency? Yeah, coaches will have to be there, obviously. The key, first of all, Bruce, is strength and conditioning. The, the conditioning part of it, we've got to get that absolutely right, um, and that's the day-to-day -day thing. The skills are the next thing the level of skill training. We've got to have skill coaching there. And looking at our teams and our team performances, the biggest difference we can make in our sevens game is actually in, in improving our attack, uh, I mean our, our defense. In our defense if statistics last year, we dropped off. We scored more points than we've ever scored before, but we're letting too many points. And the second point, the major point about this is we use too many players on the circuit. The top teams are using between... 16 and 20 players, and we're using 25 to 28 players because of availability. And that takes away a certain amount of consistency that the other teams have. So there's a lot of benefits in there, apart from just being able to train on a full-time basis. Nigel, um, in terms of, I'm going to ask about the funding for it, because it, I'm going to ask, is it 
is it is this new residency program fully funded by the USOC or is USA Rugby kicking in some dollars? And I ask because it would seem that if we were able to kind of get this residency program going without um, USA Rugby's uh, having to kick in, that maybe we save some money that we would do through camps and other assemblies and could then put that towards more warm-up tournaments before the IRB7s, more ancillary events to get these guys playing more outside of the IRB7s World Series? Well, they can't play that many games outside the World Series now because it's extending to 10, 10 tournaments, and that's a lot of tournaments and a lot of traveling and a lot of preparation. So I would be doubtful that those particular players would play that many tournaments outside um, certainly this year we've had the Pan Am Games. We've also got the World Cup qualifiers at the NACRA Sevens in the fall. There's an increasing number of events anyway. Uh, but USA Rugby, yes, will have to chip in to help um, this program. And, uh, you know, we've, we've worked out how we can do that. And uh, it, it gives the players a level of support that, that works. Um, and I think it can increase over time. And the USC is also sort of happy with that. They've assessed it alongside some of their other programs, such as field hockey, and uh, the volleyball program and the water polo programs where they've got teams in residency. I think as an American fan that pays attention to the Olympics, there are certain events that matter more um, to, to the fans. I don't know that they do to the USOC. Is a gold medal a gold medal to the USOC, or would they rather have it in, say, basketball than uh, field hockey? How much does a, does a medal matter um, in rugby for, for the USOC versus, say, another sport? It's about medals, Pat. It's all about medals. They love medals. And the medal count, you know, they were delighted we got our bronze at the Pan Am Games. We contributed to the medal count. That's what they want. They want people who want to win medals. And the medal count is hugely important for them. How important is this program for on the women's side? Because the the, the men have had uh, funding and a, and a regular competition and regular assemblies. On the women's side, it's been uh, a, a lot less regular. And and the competition, and we're still waiting for the IRB to pull the trigger on a on a, a women's circuit, although they're getting close. Um, but this, I, I, it would seem to me that the residency program for the the women, they're almost much more of a blank canvas, and so much could be accomplished. Yeah, we've got five events slated for them in 2012. Um, the IRB have also introduced uh, a women's event at the uh, Dubai Sevens, so the Dubai Sevens, and the Hong Kong Sevens. They'll be the first two um, tournaments where there are eight core teams, and the eight core teams will include the USA, and we will be competing as a core team in our own circuit, and they want to develop a circuit that mirrors the men's circuit. So each year now going forward, the number of those will increase. Las Vegas may be one of those going forward. London may be one of those going forward, um, and a number of others are, are looking at it. So, but certainly Dubai, which is next week, and the team have already been in camp for two weeks, uh, preparing for that, and they they left I think today or yesterday, um, and they're heading out to Dubai. So Dubai will be our first um, core event for them on their new series, and uh, let's hope they do well. What um, we talk, we're talking a lot about money, but but I'm sure you talk and think a lot about money as well. The Getting the USOC involved more heavily with the Sevens team, does that allow you some leeway on teams like the U20s and the high school All-Americans, the, the, the girls' U20s, and, and the collegiate All-Americans as well? Yes, it does. I mean, it does 
obviously we're still having to put money. We've probably put more money into Women's Sevens program than we've put in ever before um, to support that. The, the challenge we have with the women's programs is that with the IRB Seven Circuit, with the HSBC series, uh, we get our flights paid for and our accommodations paid for. With the women, when we send them around the world, we're still paying for them, so they become a lot more expensive than the men in that respect. Um, so we'll still have to put money into those programs. Um, we do want to put more money into our pathway programs, both sevens and fifteens, because we're looking at the university games for our men and women now with our All-Americans and uh, other opportunities for sevens at the high school level. So we, we, we know that we want to put more money into those areas. And also it's not World Cup year for 15s this next uh, next year, which is less expensive again for us with our national teams. I know, I know that the NACRA sevens, the next NACRA sevens is going to be the World Cup qualifier, but the last two NACRA sevens, USA has not sent a team. You basically delegated that to the, the South Rugby Union, USA Rugby South, and they've sent teams. And... and, and those guys, who, the, both the men and women teams, they worked very hard and, and did pretty well. But um, would you, wouldn't you have rather have sent uh, a USA B side or a, a, an age grade side or something else there? Yeah, I think we will going forward. I mean, we've been talking to the the NACRA guys we met at the Pan Am Games to discuss more opportunities for competitions going forward, where we could send the All Americans across, we could send youth teams across, we could uh, do all kinds of things where we can use sevens as a vehicle for better integration between the, the, the countries involved. So, you know, yes, the NACRA tournament this year will be a World Cup qualifier. That's important. Our women have already qualified for the World Cup because of their standing at the last World Cup, um, but they'll, they'll go too. So, yeah, I, I think so. I think that the NACRA events will get pretty exciting over time. I thought there's some great teams played in the Pan Am Games. Um, you know, the representatives of the islands are great. Mexico played well. The South American teams were competitive. Brazil were, a, you know, a certainly a different challenge and something new. So, yeah, I think it, Sevens Rugby throughout the Americas is going to grow in the next few years, and we want to send our A teams, B teams, All-Americans, high schools, anything we can to tournaments wherever we can get them. Is the is the Olympic um, qualification uh, process lined out yet? What can we expect for that? When can it start? When, when will our guys start playing for games to get into the Olympics? Well, the process has been the, 11, the strategic plan for the IRB. That's now been, I was on the working party that created the plan um, it, with the IRB. And it's been interesting, the debate that went on about how qualification will be, will be fixed. And I think the final plan has been that four teams would qualify, certainly men's teams would qualify at the HSBC 7 Series um, the year before the Games. All other teams would then have to qualify through regional tournaments. And the big argument was whether we used the uh, the, the five uh, regions of the USOC or the six regions of the IRB. And uh, I think we were fortunate that we managed to get the six regions of the IRB because that would leave us with just North America um, as our regional qualifier. So our first um, opportunity to qualify would be through the HSBC 7 Series, but we'd have to come in the top four. And as you know, that's pretty competitive. The regional uh, event would be like an ACRA Sevens um, event, and the winner of that would go through to, to Brazil. And then the runner-up in that particular event would be given the opportunity to compete in a wildcard competition. So you'd have four teams from the HSBC, six from regional qualifiers, gives you 10. The host, who would be Brazil, would be the 11th, and then the wildcard winner um, would be the 12th. And the women, it would mirror the same same model. They just don't know how many would come out of a series. And the wild card would include the the runners up of, of all the the regions yeah, from the regions. Yeah. 
So that, that competition could yeah. be pretty tough right there. Yep. Yep. There's no easy way of qualifying. The, the biggest challenge, obviously, was Oceania, where you look to Oceania and you've got the teams like Fiji, New Zealand, Australia, Tonga, Samoa, all competing for possibly two places. So I think in the in the run-up to the 2014-15 HSBC 7 Series, you're going to see an extremely competitive series of, of getting into the top four. Hey, don't forget, the biggest rugby party in the USA is slated for February 10th through 12th, 2012 in Las Vegas, Nevada. The USA 7's International Rugby Tournament brings the United States and 15 other top international 7s teams to the American Stop on the World Series circuit. It's three days of thrilling action. Go to USA7s.com for details and great hotel and ticket packages. And if you're a player, the Las Vegas Invitational is where you can play rugby before seeing the USA 7s. Presented by Stations Casinos, the LVI is the biggest tournament in the country and offers sevens and fifteens playing opportunities for all levels. Go to LVIRugby.com for details on how to sign up and get great USA Sevens deals and special rates on Stations Casinos Hotels. Once again, go to LVIRugby.com for details. And we're back with CEO Nigel Melville. And Pat, I know you had a question. Alex, you wrote something in the, the magazine that just came out yesterday, our digital online magazine, and, and kind of pondered when the United States is going to um, be able to get a, a large event, maybe not the, the 15s World Cup, maybe the 7s World Cup. I know we are going after the Junior World Trophy. Um, or what can, you know, when can we expect something like a 7s World Cup, or, or when are we going to get into the bidding process? You know, As he speculated there, you know, the next sevens or fifteens World Cup, I think, is twenty twenty three, that is on the table, um, sixteen years away. I think we all hope that we could be in a position um, by that time to where maybe we could host a fifteens World Cup. You know, how do we decide? And are there anything we're looking at bidding on and and getting our our hands into and getting some over here? Well, as you mentioned, we've got to show that we're competent to to hold a World Trophy of some sort. So, Junior World Trophy would be a start, and obviously, we're talking about that at the moment. A sevens World Cup would be. It would be great. Uh, I think that's a, another opportunity for us, and we could bid, and we've, we, we would like to have a look at that. And we were asked to join the World Cup whether we would be prepared to bid for 2023 um, for the actual World Cup. And I know it seems like a very long way away for us all, but you know we have to start those things, uh, those processes now. And so we're having a discussion about that. Um, also, Canada are interested in some sort of joint bid. Could we do it together as North America? Um, because there would be opportunities in Toronto and Vancouver, and, and obviously bringing the the tournament to North America would be, you know, tremendous boost to us all. So discussions are taking place, and you know, I get a feel that if we bid for 2023, we might not get it, but in 2027 we might. But I don't think we'll get 27 if we don't bid in 23. So I think we have to start putting the wheels in motion now to bid for the World Cup, and that way we can. Uh, certainly put ourselves on the map as serious contenders. Also, I think people would be interested in partnering with us to do that. And uh, certainly there, there is a will in our rugby community and across the globe, people would be fascinated at, at having a World Cup in America. Well, I was just going to ask you if you were looking at partnering and it just makes me think back to uh, the Olympics 1984 when Peter Uberoth came in and, and really changed how the Olympics was treated, not so much as a public works project and, and more as a money-making venture. Uh, but you need you need somebody US, – USA Rugby is, has stuff to do all, every day, so you would need somebody 
a bunch of people who would be focused on that virtually full-time. Yeah, and that's how the New Zealand bid was made. It was it's a separate company. The England bid's the same. It's England 2015. Yes, it's with the union, but it's, it's run totally separately and, and bid under a totally separate um, company's name. But, yep, I think it's something we should be looking at. I think you've got to look strategically at where we want rugby to be. We'll be able to cope with it. Have we got the infrastructure? We've certainly got the stadia. And uh, the big question would be, could we fill the stadiums? Well, Nigel Melville, CEO of USA Rugby, we really appreciate you taking the time out from your Thanksgiving weekend to talk with us and give us an update on things. Thanks Always a lot. a pleasure. And I'm sure we'll be back following up on a bunch of things that we talked about today and later on with some new developments. Thanks a lot, Nigel. All right, well, take care, guys. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you, Nigel. Cheers. Hey, good speakers. Take care. Take care, brother. And that will do it for us at Rugger Matrix America. Do not forget to check out our uh, past Rugger Matrix America shows on RuggerMatrix.com or also go to the iTunes store and you can get uh, all the past shows and obviously this show as well. Check out RugbyMag.com for all the latest rugby news and for the Rugger Matrix show as well. Thanks a lot to our sponsors, Rugby Imports, USA 7s, Las Vegas Invitational, and the Jonah Lamu Rugby Challenge xbox game and it's been great very glad to have you here on this thanksgiving weekend you have been listening to rugger matrix america